Heavenly Father, we put all this study and all the needs, all the concerns in this room in your hands, Father. We ask that you would uh, minister to us through your word. We ask, Father, you would uh, guide us in our lives out of this learning tonight and in all the nights we come together here, that we'd learn something from a man that we have heard so much about and know so much about in many cases, Father, but a man who was ultimately just like us, and even though our lives are very different from his, Father, our hearts are, are not that different. Our needs are not that different. Your call in our life, though it may be a very different kind of life for us than it was for him, Father, the ultimately, spiritually, it's no different. And Father, we want to see those similarities as an opportunity for us to take what we learn here, thinking about it deeply, going out of this room, worrying, worrying not about what the world would have us worry about, Father, but concerning ourselves with how we please you. We pray for these insights to lead us down that path, Father. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are in the middle of studying uh, several chapters at this point in the book of 2 Samuel that are all summaries of one kind or another of the success that David has as he rules the people of Israel now as their king. These all come at various points in his reign. This is not all... Uh, just what happens at the beginning. This is really an overview summary of what happens throughout the whole 40 years in which he rules. And God works to bless David personally. He works to bless David in his service to the nation, militarily and religiously. And we saw a little of that last week, right? His family's growing strong. He's moving into a new home in Jerusalem. The nation has started to defeat its longtime foes, the Philistines, because David's having success on the battlefield. That's gonna lead to an expanding of the territory, of the nation of Israel. And then at the very end of last week, we moved into that third category, religiously, what is he doing to build the nation? And we saw him beginning to go back to an observance of the law, starting with the movement of the ark from a place where it had been stored for years to bring it into Jerusalem at the place where David now considers the capital for the new nation he's united. Ultimately, it'll be joined there with the tabernacle years from now. But for now, it's simply coming back so that it's not <laughs> sitting in someone's living room out in the middle of nowhere. And David is so blessed in all that he's doing because God has raised him up specifically to show people in Israel what life can be like when you are led by a man after God's heart. And that has to seem like a miracle for the people of Israel because they have been ruled poorly for hundreds of years. The, the time of the judges, disaster. Uh, the rule of Saul, not much better. And now, with David in place, things are starting to look up. Israel's unified. They've been strengthened at, these, uh, you know, at this early stage. They're going to grow, and as we see over the course of his 40 years, they're going to prosper. And so these, this section we're in now is a bit of hitting highlights along that path so that we can see the effect of what David did for the nation and God through David. Now, having said all that, David's not perfect, of course, and there are going to be moments when David takes a misstep here or there. And just as when David prospers and is blessed, the nation is likewise prospering and blessed, well, so it is also that when David takes a misstep, when David sins, the nation suffers also. So in short, the nation is going to rise or fall based on David's obedience or otherwise. And today we're going to open up with an early example of that, an early example of this a relationship between how David moves and the nation moves, and it comes again in the context of the movement 
of the ark back to Jerusalem. Now, we started into this last week. We introduced this story, David and his men going to Baal Judah to retrieve the ark where it had been sitting for some time. And I mentioned last week that in the law, the Lord had instructed the people of Israel how to move the ark. And it had a very specific requirement. And basically, that meant priests only carrying it with poles and so on. But furthermore, the ark required that if anyone else would dare to touch the ark in its movement, that person would be dead or killed or do death in some form. And that comes as uh, no surprise if they would even look back on their history a few years, they would remember uh, 50,000 Israelites died at an earlier time when the men of Beth Shemesh had made that mistake of looking at the ark and opening it when it came back from the Philistines. So uh, it's not a hidden secret here that you don't mess with the ark. And it was, in fact, it was ironic. That mistake in Beth Shemesh is why the ark has now sat in someone's living room for the better part of the last decade or so because after that last incident, no one wanted to touch it again. All right, so now you have David wanting to move the ark to Jerusalem. And further irony, he's about to make the same mistake. Let's reread the opening verses of chapter six as we get back into this story. I read them last week, but we want to just start fresh. We'll move on from what we did last week. Verse one. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of the hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadad, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. All right, we'll stop there just real quickly. So David has got this immense crowd. Try to imagine, 30,000 men, and I would assume some women were there at least, and they accompany the transfer of the ark from Kiriath-Jerim, which is Baal Judah, the other name, this town is only about nine miles from Jerusalem. And whether out of ignorance or carelessness, David decides not to follow the law's requirements for how you move the ark. Instead, he arranges for his men to put it on the back of a cart pulled by an oxen and protected by his military, and they create this procession. And I said last week that David had good intentions here. We can see that. And in fact, you see David and all the people worshiping the Lord as they pull the cart, right? And they have all these instruments in hand. You have this 30,000 strong crowd of people in loud, heartfelt praise of God. Just a heartwarming scene, right? Except the good intentions are not a substitute for obedience to God's word. And eventually, when things go wrong, and they do go wrong, even when you have good intentions, then consequences follow. And King David's mistake brought consequences for his people, as I mentioned earlier. Look at verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. So the road that goes between Kiriathurim and Jerusalem is a narrow, kind of rocky path. It snakes through the hill country of Judea. And you can imagine on a, on a path like that, at certain points along the way, uh, it's going to get rocky and, and the cart's going to be tipping. But we're, we're told here that when it gets to a threshing floor in a town called Nacon, now a threshing floor, 
know what threshing is. Threshing is when you're going to beat grain so that you separate the seed, the fruit, from the husk, right? You've got to have a strong, hard surface to do the threshing. Typically, you thresh by walking oxen over the grain in a circle, oxen tied to a pole, and it just walks all day in a circle. But the weight of the animal and the, and the hooves of the animal break it up. And if it's on dirt, all they do is bury it. It has to be on rock, and that's why threshing floors are, are found on places where the rock of the mountain surfaces up above the dirt. And you can also imagine that, in fact, the word nakon means firm. So it's probably land, probably a town that sits on rock. So what does a wooden cart with wooden wheels do when it's rolling over rock? It just starts to go back and forth and tipping, and that's what you see happening here. One of the men, Uzzah, who's there tr- protecting the ark, he, uh, his name Uzzah means strong or mighty, and so clearly David selected this guy because he had the strength to steady an ark and stand next to it on the cart or, or walk next to it. All right, so he's there for that purpose. In Numbers 4, chapter 4, God tells Israel that a non-priest cannot touch the ark or they will die. And, you know, we, 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 there are times we don't choose to obey God's word. You know, we, we kind of come and go in our obedience to his word. But here's the thing, God always keeps his word. So when God says, you touch it and, I, and you will die, there's, there, it's always gonna happen. There's no exceptions to that rule. So Uzzah reaches out to study the ark. The Lord's anger burns against this act of disobedience and he strikes Uzzah down. Now notice the writer says that this striking was for irreverence. But the Hebrew word here found that's being translated irreverence, it's only found here in the whole Bible. And so it, it's a little, it's a word that it's not clear in all cases what the word is meaning here. And I think it's actually misused here in English. I don't think it's speaking here about Uzzah being irreverent. In fact, in the context here, he's doing exactly the opposite. He's being very reverent in the sense that he's trying to protect God's Ark. He's trying to protect God's glory in that respect. So I don't think the problem here is Uzzah's uh, irreverence. That's not what the, t- the text is trying to say. I think the text is trying to say, the it, it, more properly translated is the irreverence, and I think it's referring to David's. The problem was David's mistake in ordering Uzzah and the other men to do what they're doing, and God's anger burned against the irreverence. Now, he is keeping his word specifically when it comes to Uzzah because that's what the word said. God said, I would strike that person down. But the irreverence here is bigger than just one man's uh, choice here. In fact, the word that's being translated irreverence is probably more accurately translated error. So really what it says is he is burning an anger against the error of David. David made an error here, a big one, an error in judgment. And the Lord takes Uzzah's life out of necessity because his word demands it, but also to make a point concerning his law and David's leadership. So in that respect, Uzzah is an innocent victim, but there was no choice for God in this matter. If God, think about it this way, if God had not acted against Uzzah in the way that was required, God himself would be violating Numbers 4. And I know you might want to argue that situation with God and say, you know, this is maybe one of those cases where the better thing to do is to not do what you said you would do because it's obviously an innocent man and so on. But ask yourself this, if God can violate his own word when it suits him, then you'd have no reason to trust in his promises, right? Faithfulness works both ways. If you want God to be faithful to his promises for good, which he has made to you, then he's got to be faithful to all his word. 
Because if he can overlook the promise here that he made concerning what happens when you touch the ark, well then how do you know he won't forget his promises to you concerning eternal life, concerning uh, you know, eternal reward, concerning whatever he said? I mean, it goes hand in hand. You can't have it both ways. Either God is faithful to everything given in his word or he can't be trusted to anything in his word. And here you see God keeping his word as we want him to do, generally, and it means sometimes these sorts of outcomes are the result. But who do we blame? You can't blame God for keeping his word. I mean, God's word commanded death when a non-priest touches the ark. It was written, it was given, Israel knew it, and as I said earlier, they had 50,000 people who died not too long ago from the same basic mistake. It's not as though nobody understood this could happen. This man, Uzzah, is collateral damage in David's error. Now, I want you to imagine the scene again. You have 30,000 people singing and dancing and worshiping the Lord around the ark, and then, bing, instantly, the Lord strikes down one man for touching the ark. Suddenly, the worship stops. You never killed a worship moment faster than that. And, and the people scatter, and it's such an ironic scene because it proves one of Samuel's better-remembered statements, the prophet Samuel, when he said, 1 Samuel fifteen twenty-two, speaking to Saul at the time, he said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Now, I love that line. Samuel says, insubordination to God, which just means disobedience, is equal to idolatry. And divination. So here's the irony of the whole thing, this whole scene. David and the people of God, 30,000 of them, are worshiping the Lord with their voices and their instruments, and at the same time, they're practicing idolatry, effectively. By disobeying the word of God, they were acting contrary to worship. Because, friends, here's the insight for you today. Worship is obedience. Worship is obedience. That's fundamentally what obedience is. Do well to remember that truth as you seek the Lord in worship. You know, we ask, you come to church to sing, yes, that's good. We, we want to raise our hands in worship. That's, that's important. It's called upon us to do that. It's a natural expression of the heart that knows the Lord. But it's nullified if at the same time you live in ways that are contrary to the word of God. And you see that here in David's situation. Neither his good intentions nor the, the expression of their worship could overcome their ignorance of the word of God. It did not acquit them. Consider Uzzah. There's a man who was acting in ignorance with perfectly good intentions, and he died because the word of the Lord required it. And David got stiff consequences as well as a result of this poor leadership moment. Look at verse eight. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. All right, so David gets angry at the Lord after he destroys Uzzah. And it gives this place a name, Perez uh, roughly translates as um, breaking or destruction. So you put the two words together, it's the breaking or the destructing, destruction of Uzzah is what it says. But that's not really the right name for this place. 
It should be called David's folly. That's what it should be called. And David's anger at God under these circumstances is evidence of just how little David understood the word of God at this point. Right? It's also, I would add, an excellent example of what happens to believers generally when we live without an understanding of the word of God. And I've seen this pattern a lot. As a Bible teacher, it's inevitable that I would be in the contact with people who might be learning the Bible in many cases for the first time, which is a good thing. But the pattern goes like this. We, we have desires, we have plans, we have assumptions, we have beliefs about how we are to live and serve God. We come in the door with something. Some of those ideas are correct, but often many of them are misinformed. And until we consult the word of God, in a systematic way, consistently, persistently, we'll end up being trapped by those errors that we live with because we don't recognize that they are, in fact, error. And here's the thing, you never stop to question whether your assumptions might be wrong. No one ever comes in a door thinking, I'm sure everything I know is wrong, right? Or half of what I know is probably wrong. No one, we don't naturally do that. And much less than that do we think that anything we hold dear might offend God that's even less likely to be on our minds. But then, as time goes on and you get into the word of God, the Lord will move in your life at some point. And, and by the way, he'll do this in a Christian's life even if you don't study the Bible. He'll move in your life to address sin that we all have, because that's what he's about, helping us sanctify. So he comes into your life in some way. Maybe he'll bring a reminder or a word from a friend or a pastor, or maybe he'll bring a correction through a new teaching that tells you something, oh, that's different, didn't know that was true. Or maybe in the worst case, the Lord will take action to discipline us over our sin, as he did here with David in the case of Uzzah. But when that reminder or that correction or that discipline comes into our life, we will often do what David is doing now with his correction. We will get angry, and it'll either get directed at the messenger which is me or someone else in a role like that, or they'll get directed at God himself if we think that God is being unfair. We react angrily when someone or something dares to suggest we might be doing something wrong or we might not know something is true or we might be holding on to wrong thinking. So we lash out. And if we're getting disciplined by God, well, then we'll really complain because now it's unfair. David did that in verse nine. And as a result, you tend to move in the same way David does here. It goes from anger to a kind of fear not in the healthy sense, not the fear of the Lord, not the respectful kind of fear of the Lord, but it goes in the sense of, I think God is unpredictable and capricious and I don't understand him and I can't make him happy and so I'm going to stop trying. It becomes an excuse to live in our sin rather than to address it. The truth is, we were at fault from the beginning in our thinking or in our actions and out of love, God is moving us somewhere better and we have the tendency to turn the whole thing upside down and in our minds assume that because we're being asked to do or change or think or act, you know, do something differently, somebody's out to get us. Something's not right. I have to change. Well, let me tell you, friends, you all ain't all right. You all need to change, everyone, in some fashion, some of you more than others. You know, me too. And, and that change is healthy because it's moving you in a direction of Christ. If you walked in this door Christ-like already, you wouldn't be here. You'd be glorified. So we're all somewhere short of that mark, and as a result, the whole goal of a process like this is to see things in a better way so that it exposes our faults, exposes our lack of understanding or our lack of obedience. And in the difference that becomes apparent, we moved in the direction of where God is taking us. We move with him to that new place of thought and action, 
And in result, the end result being greater sanctification and opportunity for greater reward, perhaps. So it's a good thing in the end if you follow it. It's just like parents with kids. I mean, if you've had any children in your life, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, the Bible says it in, in Hebrews chapter 12. You know, all discipline in the moment seems sorrowful. No one wants to be disciplined, but in the end, it produces a, a righteous outcome. And David, uh, you know, is in a position to learn from this mistake and he takes the normal, somewhat normal first response, which is anger and resentment. And like David, we are already on notice of what God expects because we already have the word of God as he had it in a more limited form, but he had what he needed for this event in the law. And so our goal should be the same as what should have been his goal at the time, which is take time to understand what it says. And I should add in passing, that's the key reason why Bible studies exist. The whole idea of a Bible study, to a large extent, is to address this issue we're talking about. In fact, that's why VBVMI and VBVF exist. That's why we started these ministries. That's why we're doing what we're doing. All Christians are called to obey the whole counsel of God's word, and you cannot obey what you do not know. So it starts with knowledge, and it moves to obedience if you're to make the most of it, but it starts with knowledge. And in verse nine, David sees Uzzah's death. He resents it. He becomes afraid of God, and then he asks in a self-pitying way, how can the ark come to Jerusalem? You should pick up on the self-pity there. David is essentially saying, it's impossible for me to please God in this whole endeavor. There's no way to move this ark. He's just gonna kill us anytime we try. I mean, that's the implication. He's saying, God can't be pleased in this matter. That is not true. God very much desires his ark be moved and be reunited with the tabernacle sooner or later. That's what he wants. But at the same time, he's told them how to do it. You know, the same word that told them how to build the ark is the same word that told them how to move the ark. It's all there. And David's predicament and his despair are just the result of ignoring God's instructions. By the way, I'm not a particularly good counselor because that's typically where all my counsel goes. Your predicament and your despair are the result of ignoring the word of God. Pretty much everybody I talk to could have that statement read to them and they're more or less got all the counseling they need. It's not that simple, I get it, but that's the point. And this will not be the last time that David made that mistake. David acts outside the counsel of God's word and he continues to do so from time to time. And if you know much about his story, you know that every time he stumbles into serious sin, it's because he has left behind what the word of God says and when he goes astray, those people that are under his charge will suffer consequences with him. That is a basic biblical principle, not just for David. It's been the pattern of leadership in the Bible from the beginning. And it's, uh, I think, a, a... very classic pattern in Israel's existence. That is, every time their leaders went one way, the nation went with them, whichever way that was. David is just the latest and not the last example of this truth. That's why, by the way, the Bible puts such high standards on knowledge and character for those who would lead God's people at any point in history, including today. The fruit of a competent, godly leader is knowledgeable, obedient followers of God. Conversely, Unqualified, untrustworthy leaders invariably yield ignorant and disobedient followers. So the Lord's gonna use David's life as an example of both sides of this relationship. This incident is one of the first major errors in David's leadership and the consequences are following. And in each case, when he has a mistake and it has implications for the people, here's where David shines in the end, which is 
which is why this is actually a good story for David in general. He'll have his, step, his missteps, there'll be a consequence, but it's how he comes out of that that really defines this man for many people because you know, anyone can try hard and do well and mess up. The real test is what do you do after that? When, when, when your mistakes brought to light, how do you deal with that? And in this case, it takes David three months, and maybe that's a long time or maybe not, depending on your perspective. But in three months' time, he has to absorb and accept the lesson of God's discipline, and then he has to come to an understanding of it. And for those three months, in the meantime, the ark just sits in another house, this time in the house of a Gittite living outside of Jerusalem. Now, Gittite is the name given to someone who comes from the region of Gath. Gath was in the Philistine territory in the Shephelah of Israel. But in 1 Chronicles 15, which tells us the same moment in a different way, we're told that that guy appears to have been a Levite. So what they found is they found a Levite living nearby and they conscripted him into holding on to the ark after it had killed Uzzah. So it's stored down this guy's home. David and the people leave it for three months. Here again, another little example of the consequence of ignorant leadership over God's people. When, when I, this is another truth I've seen. When poor leaders lead God's people astray, which is effectively what just happened in this moment with David, the people then often distance themselves from God. You'll see this often. Believers led by poor leaders will walk away from practicing their faith. Churches decline, and at worst, they'll shut down. You know, that's why you have so many old churches in parts of the East or elsewhere in the world who, that are now museums and community centers. How did that happen? Well, the faithful were misled by poor leaders, poor teaching, the churches declined, they disappeared, and the world filled in the gap. David misled the people, the people suffered, they abandoned the work of God, and the testimony of God went undercover in a man's living room for three months. It's a cycle that happens over and over. So David's leadership has resulted in this. People are afraid. They've it's left them with a distorted view of God. They're all worried about God now. They leave the ark and they walk off. And then for three months, David apparently engages in Bible study. And I'm not joking because he learns the proper method. For he signed up for some Bible study, happened to be in Exodus. He goes through it. He's like, oy vey. He says, can you imagine the aha moment when David came across this passage in Numbers chapter four? Four or five. When the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it and they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it. They shall spread over it a cloth of pure blue and shall insert its poles. And then verse 15, when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, then the camp is to set out after the sons of Kohath Shall, uh, shall come to carry them so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. Sons of Kohath are the priests. So David eventually got to know this. We know he does because he does this next. So David discovers there is a proper method for carrying the ark and by the way, it's not on a cart. And he realizes that can be fixed now. But I also think he must have realized that Uzzah's death was entirely unnecessary and entirely his fault. That must have been a humbling moment. That must have been intensely convicting for him. And it certainly gave him an appreciation for the word of God. And so in typical Davidic fashion, he doubles down on obedience from this point forward. He doesn't go just back to do what he should do. He goes back to do what he should do and then some. And 
It starts with the assembling of a team. Now, we have to see this in some other part of Scripture. It's not in 2 Samuel, but if you want to turn for a moment into 1 Chronicles, you can read with me. I'll read it to you. But it's 1 Chronicles 15. That chapter is this same scene, but with more detail. But I'm going to read it to you because I want you to listen to the... This shows you how much David then goes the other way. Verse 1 of 1 Chronicles 15. Now David built houses for himself in the city of David and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place which he had prepared for it. And he gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites. And then you jump to verse 11. And I'm just skipping the list of all the Levite names. Verse 11, then David called for Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadad, and he said to them, you are the heads of the fathers' households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, of God, Lord God of Israel to the place that I prepared for it. Then he says this, because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the, the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. Verse 25, so it was David and the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands who went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. Okay, so notice the extent that David goes to now and how often it's mentioned that he follows the law and he does it according to the word of God. And he's even acknowledged we messed up last time because we didn't do it this way. And he tells them exactly what he wants them to do. And then as he moves into doing it with all of this, this proper uh, ritual and now with the celebration and the shouts of joy and so on, now you have true worship, praising God in the midst of obeying his word. That's worship in its full sense. And the result is God is pleased, the people are edified. So back in 2 Samuel chapter 6, now what we're given here that's new is we're given the trigger that caused David to move after three months. And the trigger is the prospect of blessing. Verse 12, 2 Samuel 6, 12. Now it was told King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. So you have to put this scene together with what we already studied, right? They work together. So here's what we learned. You, know, you have a three-month delay. This is when David is studying, figuring out how to do this the right way. And he hears that the place where the ark's been resting has brought great blessing to the man who's holding on to it. Now, we don't know what he means necessarily, but you can assume enlarging his household, uh, prosperity in various forms. I mean, it must have been something notable where everyone is looking around going, man, this guy's hit the lottery. All his sheep are reproducing, all his crops are going crazy. I mean, it's, it's just miracle grow in his living room. It's just whatever can come out of this is happening, and people are taking note of it. And then it gets back to David, and when it catches David's attention, he hears about it, 
it changes his attitude toward this work for God. He's realizing, and in a healthy way here, that Obed-Edom's prosperity is an indication that if the ark was back in Jerusalem, the blessing would be available to the whole nation, not just to this one man. And as such, it's reminding David that God is good to his people. And, and it's just a matter if they would hear and obey his word. It's not uh, capricious. And so after coming to that realization and now armed with the knowledge of how to move the ark properly, David's ready. He moves the ark, just as we learned in, in 1 Chronicles 15, doing it according to the word of God. And then he adds, this is where I said he doubles down. Then he adds something. For every six paces that these men walk, there's an ox and a cow slaughtered at that point. Now, they're not far at this point. That When, when you get to Obed-Edom's home, it's within sight of Jerusalem. I mean, they're just on, over a ridge, just over a hill. But that's, you know, six paces isn't very far. The number six in, bio, in the Bible, by the way, is the number of sin, sinful man. So the symbology of it is this is a sacrifice for our sin of having done this the wrong way before. They must have had a trail of animals lined up every six in, you know, feet. Bring another one over here. And he must have had priests there you know, busy slaughtering while other priests are walking. And then it's just this mass operation of, of assembly line slaughter. And it starts at Obed-Edom's home and it goes all the way to the place where David has prepared a tent. That is a powerful display of repentance, right? But it is also a reminder of what Samuel said. It is better to obey than to have to do all that, right? Sacrifice, fundamentally, uh, no matter how hard you work to show God that you are repentant, that work is still a reminder that you sinned in the first place. It's better to avoid the sin so that you don't have to go through all the rest of it. That's what Samuel was saying. And this is a good, powerful reminder of that. Interestingly, in that passage I just read, verse 14, it tells us David wears a priestly garment as he leads the procession, a linen ephod. Now, a linen ephod is just a sleeveless white tunic in linen. It was prescribed for the priests. Now, in this case, it's not the only thing David's wearing. He would have worn that over what was his normal tunic, his normal full tunic. But the question is, why did he don a priestly garment since he's not a priest, he's not a Levite? And there are a couple of answers. First, a non-Levite wearing an ephod, a linen ephod, is not against the law. The law required a priest wear one. It didn't prohibit other people from wearing one. So it's not like it's a only the priest can wear it kind of thing. So there's no sin in wearing one. Uh, now, had David gone with that on and then you know, done a sacrifice of, of an ox or something, if he had tried to take on priestly duties, yeah, then it would have been sin. But he's not. Look, verse 14, he's busy dancing before the procession. Not easy to cut open animals while you're dancing around. He's, actually, the word in Hebrew for dance there is literally the word whirl. So he's just whirling away in front of the, of the tabernacle, or the ark, rather. So clearly, David is not assuming any priestly function at this point. He just has a, this, this garment on. So why does he put it on? Well, I'm assuming, based on what he's doing, what, what are they doing? They're sacrificing. You have to put in your head the visual of this scene. It's not a, vi- a scene of a bunch of people carrying a cart with a joyous procession. It's a scene of a bunch of people carrying a cart with a joyous procession while thousands of animals or hundreds of animals are getting slaughtered on the way there. That's the more indelible image as you watch this thing, right? And anyone who is performing the sacrifices, and there had to be a lot of them, he's brought a lot of men with him, they're all wearing the same thing he's wearing. 
So David, it seems, has put on the linen ephod to identify with the rest of the procession so that he is fit in with them and he is making a statement in that regard that he is one of these same peoples effectively. That is, by wearing the same uniform, he identifies with them and in a sense, he's putting himself in the place of Uzzah. He's saying, I'll take the fall this time with you if this doesn't work out. I'm not apart from you, I'm with you in this and I believe God's gonna bless us together. it's, It's like becoming the common man with the team and not standing out as separate from them in a way that was not the case the first time around. And that's what led to Uzzah's death. Then there's a second reason I think he's got this linen on. David is a priest. He's just a priest in a different order. David is Melchizedek in his day. David is the priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, the order of Melchizedek is a priestly order according to the writer of Hebrews. It's the order that our Lord is out of, a priest of. It's a different order of priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. It predates the law, which established the Levitical priesthood. So it's a a separate order of priests. Now like any order, the word order means a handing down. It doesn't mean like a a monastical order. It's not like a club. Order in the Bible means a handing down so that something is inherited from father to son, from father to son. And that's how the priesthood works. Priests come into being because they are born out of a family of priests, and then the high priest is the one who succeeds his father, and so on. Well, the Melchizedek priesthood is also an order. So at any one time, there is a priest of Melchizedek on the earth in the Old Testament times. When that priest died, his son inherited the position. The first priest in that order would have been Adam, the only man alive in his day at first. And the line of succession passes in the seed line that's given in Genesis. The line of genealogy that traces through Genesis is the line of the priestly order of Melchizedek from father to son. When Abraham was meeting Melchizedek in the book of Genesis, he was meeting the man who had that order in that day. And genealogically, that would have been Shem from the the sons of Noah. So Shem was the oldest living in the line, and so he held the order till he died. In the book of Hebrews, we learn that Jesus will be the one who holds that position forever because he never dies. So he is the last to receive it. He received it from his father, earthly father, Joseph. That's why Joseph is not visible in the gospel record because he died in order for Jesus to receive the order of Melchizedek from his father. Jesus now holds it forever. He is the last in the line. He is the last priest in the order of Melchizedek. In David's day, David is the Melchizedek. David is in the line of Jesus. So until uh, his father died, till Jesse died, Jesse would have been the one who had the order of Melchizedek. Jesse dies during Saul's reign. David received it at that point. So it's not an order that had a ritual of, of uh, law associated with it. There's, no, there's nothing in scripture that tells us this order had any function in the society of Israel. It was simply a line that brought us to Jesus. But in that respect, David could don priestly garb And as such, he would be acting as the priest Melchizedek, not as a Levitical priest, not as part of the law of Moses. So in that respect, David now gives us another clear picture of Jesus. He is the king of Israel who is also the priest in the order of Melchizedek at his time. A Levite could never be king because kings come from the tribe of Judah. And a king like David from the tribe of Judah could never be a Levitical priest because priests in the Levitical line have to come from Aaron, from the tribe of Levi. But David and Jesus can be king and priest because their order is not of Levi, it's of Melchizedek. 
If you want more on that, by the way, I'd encourage you to go study in our study on Hebrews where we talk more about this principle. So the ark arrives in Jerusalem. With it comes the blessing of the Lord upon the people and upon David. They're celebrating. However, the pattern of David's sin and the consequences that follow and so on, that continues as well. And it comes back to something that started even earlier as we see now in verse 16. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now, Michal was David's first wife and daughter of Saul, you remember? This is the wife that Saul gave David, his first wife that he left behind when he had to flee from Saul. Later, Michal was wed to another man whom she loved, And then when David negotiated with uh, Abner, he requested the return of Michal, and that required that they rip her away from her new husband. Remember all that? Now, you see here that that whole experience has caused her to despise David. And, I mean, who can blame her, really, after all of that? David's selfish choice has set him up with an adversary in his own home. And she witnesses David's joy over the ark, and his willingness to express that joy outwardly by dancing, and she disapproves. And in verse 16, you see that mentioned, but I think in the way it's written, you can tell her disapproval is the result of a much deeper-seated dislike now for David. In fact, the writer calls her, notice that in that verse, the writer calls her the daughter of Saul, like we didn't know that. In other words, he's show, the writer is choosing to link her attitude with that of her father's dislike for David. In other words, she's like her old man Saul. That's the implication here. Just as Saul was jealous of David's relationship with the Lord and, of the, and with the people, so now is his daughter following after dad's footsteps. That's the sense of this. Verse 17. That's just foreshadowing. We come back to that. Verse 17. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent, which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to the men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. So David gets what he sought. He got the ark, moves it back. He's got a tent now for it. Now, this is not the tabernacle. He just put a tent up to hold it. Uh, the tabernacle is still in Gideon, uh, Gibeon for now. And David celebrates the day by speaking a blessing on the people in the name of the Lord. Now, when we hear in the Bible somebody does something in the name of the Lord, you need to understand what that means biblically. It means that it is done in the keeping of the will of the Lord. They had a leading of the Spirit. They had a knowledge of some sort that told them, this is what I'm to do. God is in this. And it's therefore in the name of the Lord. We try to turn that back around sometimes and we don't understand that that doesn't work. I I always use the example of a rope. You know, if you pull on a rope, it does what you want. But you can't push on a rope, right? In this sense, when the Lord is pulling us into something and we do it in the name of the Lord, it's because the Lord's already doing it through us. You can't turn that around and go, in the name of the Lord, I want you to do this, Lord. No, it doesn't work that way. So you can't say, I do something in the name of the Lord, and that suddenly demands that God respond to your desire and follow suit. It's only when God is leading you through his spirit that he's saying, I want this done, I'm gonna be doing this, tell everyone about it, that you can say, well, in the name of the Lord, this is what I'm to do. It's built on a movement of the spirit in you that brings you to that understanding. You can't reverse it, right? So in this case, David is telling the people, I know the Lord is planning to bless us 
And clearly, the history that follows proves that to be true. And in a gesture of kindness, he gives a gift to all the people out of the storehouse of the king. They each get a cake of bread, cake of dates, a cake meaning like a, a you know, something in a, a, satchel, a satchel or a, a, some kind of cheese cloth, you know, a bunch of dates and a bunch of raisins. Uh, Now that may not sound like much of a gift for us today, that's just a sign of how spoiled we are culturally, right? Because those were precious and prized treats in that day, the people would have been very thankful for them, and David's gift uh, had had a symbolic meaning as well, because dates, fruit in general in the Middle East are are a a symbol of uh, fertility and, and prosperity, and so, you know, the abundance of those fruits being handed out was a way of testifying to that. And it began a long tradition, or it's actually part of a long tradition of Jewish people celebrating with food. If you've been around Jewish culture, if you've been to Israel, then you know perhaps more than any other culture, Jewish culture revolves around food and feasts. Great breads, great dairy products, just fruit. You know, it's a wonderful place to eat. If you like eating, go to Israel. And you see that tradition reflected here. But in the background of all of this, Michal is still fuming at her husband and sees an opportunity to lecture him upon his return. This is, there's something so marriage appropriate here. There's something very, you can easily see this. Verse 20, when David returned to bless his household, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servant maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. We'll pause there. So this is what I'm saying. It just sounds to me like something you can imagine happening in, you know, oh, what did you do today? Oh, look what you did today. So Mikhail's complaint boils down to dignity. She's complaining that David acted in an undignified way and how he led the ark in the way that he did. But you have to read between the lines. Another very marriage-appropriate comment, right? You always got to read between the lines. There's usually more going on. And in this case, the real issue is deeper than what she's talking about. The real complaint is something other than what she's arguing with. She begins sarcastically, oh, how the king distinguished himself today. And then her specific charge here is that, you know, it's uncovered. He uncovered himself in the eyes of his servants. But those servants aren't, aren't just like servant maids. She's talking about everyone who was there. When you're king, everyone is your servant, right? So she's saying, you have not, it's not about him dressing immodestly. There are those out there that, that try to turn this in that direction. And that's just reading the text without reading between the lines, That's not reading it with any nuance and appreciating what she's really upset about. The point is, uh, this is a king who should be dressing like a king and standing apart from his subjects and not lowering himself to be amongst them in a way that he loses that distinction. And she wants him to retain that superior, regal appearance, not get in some little linen ephod and dance around like a schoolgirl in front of everybody else, right? It's that sense of impropriety that's bothering her. And she's speaking in exaggerated terms. I mean, again, a very common marriage situation. You get mad at your spouse, you start exaggerating in ways, right? And she talks about him being uncovered and shameless. Well, it's not literal. It's figuratively, relatively speaking. You might as well be naked. I mean, you were just running around there like everybody else. You don't look like a king. That's the attitude. In truth, though, she despises David, not for the way he's dressing or even for the way he's acting, but because of who David is to her. Remember, she, David abandoned her years ago. He never returned for her when he had chances. And then he, while he's away, he marries other women while on the run. 
And finally, when he does finally get to a position to do something, he takes her forcibly from the husband who was so devoted to her, he chases her hundreds of miles until he's forced to give her up, right? This is her memory of what you've done to me, David. And now that David has taken her father's place as king, she can't see him with any respect. And seeing him dance that way, it sort of just was the last straw. It was, for her, it was the perfect illustration of how she sees this man from what could have been a, a man that was her prince who came to her rescue and, and did what a king should do for his wife. Instead, he's treated her as, as this second thought property that he can pull out of, a, of an existing marriage when it suits him, and it's diminished him in her eyes, and now she sees a visual example of it in raw terms, and it just, you know how that can be when you see something like that, it just triggers all the memory, and you, all of a sudden it, it just all comes out. And David immediately recognizes that that is truly her concern. Because if you'll notice, he does not deal with the dress, he deals with the real issue. And that is his dignity as king, but more importantly, his relationship with her and his relationship with the the Lord. Verse 21, David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes, but with the maids of whom you've spoken, with them I will be distinguished. Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. All right, so keep reading between the lines with me here. David corrects his wife saying, I wasn't dancing before the servants. I was dancing before the Lord. And it was the same Lord who appointed me as king in place of your dad and in place of your family. And for that reason, I'm celebrating before that Lord. There's a definite contention here. David's not being conciliatory whatsoever. He stands his ground, and then he does add this, and this is an important comment. He says his dignity, he uses the word esteemed here. Let's just turn it around, though. He's saying his dignity before the Lord is not his first concern. In fact, he's saying his dignity, period, is not his first concern. He says, I will be more lightly esteemed than this. That's a way of saying that I know I will have even less reason to be esteemed or I will have even less dignity than this. There'll be, there'll be worse days than this. Dancing before the people is the least of my faults. In other words, David is remaining humble here. And as he remains humble in his own eyes, he says, he then expects that the Lord will make David distinguished before the people. That's his response to her. He says, I'm not gonna defend my dignity. I have no dignity. It's all about whether God gives me dignity or not. I'm gonna remain humble. Uh, those are remarkable words spoken by a very powerful man who had every reason to be prideful and to demand respect. And I would tell you, if David had demanded respect from her and from the people, he no doubt would have received it. I mean, they gave respect and authority to lesser than him, like Saul. But as the saying goes, if you have to demand respect and authority, then you truly don't have either. So David displays, I think, his, his single greatest quality as a leader here and other times, which is humility. So many leaders, so many individual Christians in the church would do well to remember this example and follow it, right? How many ministries have fallen to pride uh, because of a prideful leader who forgot to please God and just wanted to please himself? I mean, it's the classic uh, uh, problem we see often in the church. This split between Michal and David, as you see it play out here, it leads to an estrangement. In verse 23, the writer gives us a little footnote saying she never had any children with David. Given David's fertility with his other wives, it would seem they're never intimate again. And 
or maybe the Lord's preventing her from conceiving, but whichever, it's clear that David's relationship with Michal is no longer what it used to be, and it, it isn't going to get repaired. And she, my guess is that her relationship with the Lord was different than his, that he knew the Lord, she didn't. And she couldn't celebrate with David in his joy over what the Lord was doing, and for that reason, she couldn't respect his relationship with the Lord either. Uh, a gentleman named Alexander White once said this about David and McCall, and I think it really sums this relationship up well, and from both perspectives. He said, never, surely, were man and wife more unequally yoked than was David, the man after God's own heart, and McCall, the daughter of Saul. What was, what was David's meat was McCall's poison. What was sweeter than honey to David was gall and wormwood to McCall. The things that had become dearer and dearer to David's heart every day, those were the very things that drove McCall absolutely mad, furiously and ungovernably mad that day on which the ark of God was brought up to the city of David. So David did McCall wrong. And the consequences for David for that mistake was to find a woman in his home who didn't know the Lord or love him. And David's right to the throne, true as it was, did not justify his domestic neglect of this woman. And as the anointed monarch of Israel, we see him at times caring for God's people with great tenderness, but as a husband to Michal, he was harsh. I think that's fair. I think he was unfeeling. We don't see any evidence otherwise, at least not after a certain point. And this is the woman, after all, who saved his life. So... In the end, it appears as though his mistake in how he treated this woman came back upon him in a loveless marriage and this woman he had to deal with until the end of his life, presumably. And in the end, we're told she is barren, probably, as I said, because they didn't have intimate relations after this point. In the long run, that's a blessing, though, in this sense, because the nation never saw a son born to the daughter of Saul, which could have led to a rival, potentially. And since none of Saul's sons survived and none of his daughters had any children, the effect is his line comes to an end here. The dynasty of Saul is over. All right, with that, we move into chapter seven for a few minutes. A bit of an intro for something for next week, but it, it raises a really interesting uh, moment that we'll study in detail. I want to introduce it to you. It continues on this theme of David blessing the religious life of Israel. Let's start in verse one. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. Then the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. I'll stop there for a second. This scene, now you have to jump forward in time here for a minute. This scene takes place much later in David's life, almost near the end of his life as king. And we know this because of the circumstances. Earlier in chapter 5, back a couple of chapters ago, if you remember when David first took on the power as king, we were told that he had a palace built for him with the help of a man called Hiram, the king of Tyre. And remember they brought in cedar trees and they built this cedar uh, home for him, this famous this, this palace. Well, history tells us that Hiram didn't rule, didn't come into power until just the very last part of David's reign. And yet here you're told David's living in that cedar home. So this moment has to take place very late in David's life. Remember I told you earlier, this section of the book is the writer kind of recounting how David blessed the nation, and he's not doing it purely chronologically. He's doing it in terms of theme, military, political issues, religious issues, and so he's moving in time to find them. 
Here we go to the end of David's reign. And it, you can see also that it's near the end of his life because it says here, David reflects and says, I've defeated all my enemies. This is at the end of that expansion period for David. That may explain why Tyre then was so generous to build this house because if he's defeated all the Philistines, the Philistines occupied the plain and the coastal region of Israel, which was the primary trading territory for, for Tyre and Sidon and the Philistines for their competition. So with the Philistines defeated by David, well, now the Tyrians are much more profitable, much more prosperous. They reward David with a nice house. So now David sits in that nice house and he reflects on his wealth and his safety and it dawns on him, you know, the ark of the Lord is still sitting outside in a tent. So he consults with the prophet of the time, Nathan, and he implies, he doesn't say it here, but he's implying, I should build a nice place for the ark. Nathan's response to that suggestion is, well, you ought to do what you think is best. That is the proper response for, from a prophet who has not heard from the Lord. Remember, prophets are required by Scripture to speak only what they're given to speak by God because if they do otherwise, they risk error. And if a prophet ever speaks something and it doesn't come to pass, the law requires that they be killed. So that rule was as much to protect the prophet from the people as it was the people from the prophet because if you were a prophet and you knew the penalty for getting anything wrong was death, you didn't talk very often and you picked your words very carefully because you didn't want to be moved by anything other than God, right? And so... Here's Nathan hearing David talk about something pretty substantial, you know, doing something for God, building something for his ark, and he wisely says, well, you might want to do whatever you care to do, but I'm not telling you to do it because I don't know if that's what God wants. I haven't heard from him. So he lets David make his own decision, and David, uh, and I love what he says here. He says, because the Lord is with you. You can make this decision. God will tell you because he hadn't told me. So David goes off thinking he has a splendid idea, but before he can act on it, the Lord does choose to give Nathan the answer. Verse 4. But in that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even a tabernacle, wherever I have gone. With all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the tribes of Israel which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I love it when the Lord's sarcastic, and I just, I think it's great. I love it. So the Lord comes to Nathan that same night, gives him the answer, and he says, this is what I want you to remind David. Remind David, I never asked anyone to build me a house. He says, for all these years, I've been with Israel. Since the beginning, I, you know, in the desert, content, uh, contently living in this tent. That is not God truly living there. You get my point, right? He's saying, I've had this provision for myself, and I stipulated a tent, and I've been fine with that. And I didn't need you to build me a cedar house. This is such an interesting moment because it's God demonstrating the humility that David once possessed himself. The man who's after God's own heart is now living in a cedar palace thinking he needs to build a grand building for God and God's reflecting the humility that David should have been keeping himself. And how do we know that, that God is great? How do you know of the greatness of God? Is it from the greatness of the buildings that you build for God? Some think that. Isn't that just a demonstration of our own pride when we do that? Especially when God hasn't asked you to do that? So why did God dwell in tents? Why was that his preference? Because his greatness is self-evident, it doesn't depend on externals first. 
but secondly, because of what it meant, because of the message it sends. The Lord says in verse seven, he never instructed any of the tribes of Israel to build him a house. And when you think back to all the years in the desert, the Lord had a lot of time with Israel and he gave them a lot of instruction. The first five books of the Bible, primarily. And in all of that time, he asked them to build all kinds of things. You know, the tabernacle, furniture, and all the rest. So if he had wanted something impressive built for himself, it would have been given to them in the time that he was there. The point is, he doesn't need this building, his honor is not determined by such things, and he did not command such things. Once again, good intentions are not a substitute for obedience. And a good rule of thumb for whether or not you should do something is to do the last thing that you heard God plainly tell you and keep doing it until you hear the next thing. And if that is years, it's years. People often tell me, well, I asked God, he told me this, but I haven't heard anything lately. Well, just keep doing what you were told. Why do you need a new thing? You know, in other words, check in, he'll check in when he's ready. Just keep going. The point is, in this case, David has come up with an idea that he thinks is good for God, and God has not asked him to do it, and his intent in it is wrong. His intent is plainly about image, about grandeur. I'm living in this house. I feel a little guilty. I've kind of let myself get spoiled. Um, Rather than step back from that, I'll bring God to where I am. That's why a woman shared the fruit with Adam. When we sin, we want to move people to where we are rather than to retreat from where we went. And the Lord gives Nathan the reason here now why he has never told anyone in Israel to build him a permanent structure. We're going to read these verses to end today, and we're going to begin our exposition next week out of this passage. I want to leave you with something to think about. Listen to why he says, I don't need anything but a tent. He says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. Right? I didn't need a building. I was everywhere you went. And have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more, as formerly, even from the day I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. All right, this is an important passage in Scripture, commonly known as the Davidic Covenant. We're going to come back to this next week. We're going to explain the context of the covenant, the passage itself, how it relates to that, and what he's actually saying and why a tent isn't is the right thing for God now. And we'll lead off from that next week. Come back for that. In the meantime, let's pray. And as always, questions. The only thing you can't ask me about is the last passage because we're going to do that next week. But otherwise, you can ask questions and uh, on this or anything else in the Bible and we'll finish out our time with that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we learned a lot tonight, Father, about David and I hope, Father, a little bit about ourselves and a lot about how you see us and wish to work with us in better ways. I pray, Father, for our heart to be obedient, trusting in the blessing that comes and knowing it will be better 
than the things we gain by our own hand in sin. I pray, Father, that our knowledge of Scripture will continue and abound as we learn and that our heart will have a desire to learn and to never stop until the day we see you face to face and see you clearly. I pray, Father, and thanks for this church, for all who come in, and for the safety of all those who gather with us. And I ask, Father, that you continue to bring us together in weeks to come. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.